0: a recording of Joel McHugh, the guy who wrote the book The Steps We Took changed my life I recommend it highly welcome to today's podcast today we're going to be listening to an author and teacher Joel McHugh, how he recovered this was published in May 18 2012 and joy McCue is spelled M C capital K
1: Friends in the program are here, and George and Nelson, and Charlie and Gary and Dave. Remember, remember, remember to go back 20 years ago when we were all coming together, and all this was the beginning. George was saying, uh, someone told him, uh, we, and we was all being over there, he said, Charlie's getting old, and Joe's getting old. You ought to go, you might not see him no more. And Charlie and George they got home and got, hell, he was talking about me. He wasn't talking about them. <laughs> 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 I, I heard a guy tell him one other day, he said, uh, this guy went to the fortune child The fortune teller told him, I got some good news and some bad news. He said, what you want first? He said, give me the good news. He said, today is the last day of your life. He said, man, how is that going to be good news? What's the bad news? He said, I should have told you yesterday.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <clears throat> but it's good to be here. And they say one of these things, we tell a little bit about what is, what what, 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 we're, what we're like and what happened and what we're like now. And I always get thrilled to have the opportunity each time, many, many times, Talk about these things. Three things in my life. It's necessary that we talk about how it was, so we identify with each other. And and very important that we talk about how our lives is now. Sometimes we don't. I think the greatest thing we need to talk about is what happened in our life, the miracle of our recovery, so that we can renew that. Each day in our lives, we have to renew it in the lives of other people. Now, I don't know. I, I was born in Lower Kentucky. I came from all them good Christian homes. Them people raised a lot of drugs, they say. They're them raising kids. <laughs> that was typical for me. And I had a great childhood. Uh, we were poor, very poor people in those days. But I thought about today, we were... They were better off with the poor people. My father had a job in the depression. Nobody didn't have a job. We had a job and we had plenty to eat because I asked my mother for some more. She said, you've already had a plenty. So I know I had plenty to eat. <laughs> 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 but I was sort of like Dan. I heard George Dan this morning brought back, medicine. you know, so much. many things in our lives were like, And I think I developed a will as a young person to succeed and get out of that situation. And I, you know, I had it early in my life. Um, And uh, we were—alcohol was never in our home. Alcohol was, you know, something other people did. And I I had—I guess I had a pretty nice childhood, you know. A lot of people say, "Well, you know, look back when they get sick. come to age, we'll to look back at your childhood and find out what made them alcoholic." I'm like, "Damn, you did drink a little whiskey." And I guess that's what caused my whole lot of it. <laughs> but I remember, I had a great, you know, I it was the only only childhood I know, so I guess it was all right. And I remember the experience, and I remember my first experience with alcohol. Um, I remember the night, I remember who I was with and everything. It must have had some effect on my life. I don't remember my first Coca-Cola or my first hot dog. <laughs> uh, I remember my first drink. <laughs> Dr. Silver said we will remember, and do we remember, the sense and ease and I can't in much to take a few drinks of alcohol. And I remember that night, and I remember the sensation and what the few drinks did to me completely changed my life. And I never forgot what Alcohol did for me. My book said, and we pursue this to the gates of the insanity of death. We pursue this illusion. Illusion. Something that's not true. To the gates of the insanity of death. And uh, I'm different then I think I was an alcoholic from the very get go. Some people very few people are most enough to work at it, you know. Uh, But I learned real fast. (laughs) And whatever drink I ever took, the very first time I drank, I drank too much. I've always drank too much. I um but but what the the real kick kicker about this whole thing is really Alcoholics don't know they're alcoholics. A lot of people say they deny that they're alcoholics. They don't, they, they don't deny. They don't know they're alcoholics. And if you're an alcoholic and you don't know you're an alcoholic, you get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> because you try to do things that non-alcoholic people do. When an alcoholic tries to do things that non-alcoholic people do, He gets in a lot of trouble. Like getting married and hold a job. <laughs> you know, alcohol. You can't do those things and hold a job and you know and drive a automobile. Those things are bad for us. But we think we're not alcoholic, so we're gonna do the things that they do and get all confused. My favorite story and I tell it sometimes it's a good Saturday night. There's a, there's a guy talks about he was he was a minister. He went over to visit these <coughs> two sisters, old maids, and they had been living together all their lives. And uh, he said he went in the in the parlor and was sitting there talking to a visitor with them. And he kept on looking at something over on the piano. He couldn't figure out what it was. It was a glass of water. It was a glass of water sitting there on the piano with a conundrum in the, in the glass. And he kept on looking at it and uh, finally couldn't hate head hear to ask one of them what is that on that glass in the piano she said well we don't know we found it in the park <laughs> and we didn't know what it was but it said on the package place it on your organ it prevents disease <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, we didn't have an organ, so we put it on our p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one said, And you know, we haven't had a cold all winter." <laughs> 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 but anyway, I, I proceeded to try to do the things that, Alcoholics can't do and I really messed up every one of them. You know, I, I was a failure. I was a total I I failure in everything. You know, I see a lot. I hear different stories, different people about me that successful and lost things, and Alcoholics Anonymous and all those stories. And I can't entertain you tonight, I, I didn't lose anything by drinking. Drinking never let me get anything. I never got started in anything. <laughs> I never got anything to lose. Uh, I was married and divorced and uh, right away three or four years, a couple of kids in that marriage. And I become I went back home with my father. That's why alcohol is you know, f alcohol is not the time in back home with the family. They say we got a family disease. I don't know. We we need those people bad. Uh, But uh, that's where I ended up, back when my father father was up in age, and I would lose jobs and embarrass him in a few months, and then I would say, well, I'm going to leave town. I think I'll go over here and see what I can do. And my father, God bless him, uh, he would always lend me some money to leave town. (laughs) I I, I was over four or five years before I figured out what he was doing. He said, I'm with you. I said, "I ain't doing no good in this town." He said, "How much you want, borrow? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd leave and go off, stay a few months, and mess up, and then, as soon as I got in trouble, I'd come back. And on one of these occasions, and you know, it was just never, I never was able to hold a job, wasn't able to do nothing. And I was uh, in my late 20s, and by that time early 30s. And I remember it was just been coming and going and everything. We started about a day that got put up in Kansas City, out there working and waiting tables and staying drunk. I had several professions, and if you're a real alcoholic, you know, you need several professions. <laughs> <laughs> When alcoholics say they can do almost anything, he's telling you the truth. (laughs) I had a guy know that he knows that I work with alcoholics and he came with a scheme to get some government money to set up a training program for alcoholics. And he came to ask me about getting some alcoholics to train. I told him all I had needed untrained. But uh, this is why I decided to come to Little Rock and Little Rock is today home for me. It's home. really home for me. That's where I want to be. It's where I love to be. That's where I'm comfortable in. Uh but I think God took the interest in my life. And I think I'm in Little Rock today for a purpose. And, you know, I think it all began when God took an interest in my life. I think that's why I'm becoming an alcoholic, so I could fulfill my purpose. I think that's probably why I sobered up. That's why I came to Little Rock. But it didn't seem like it in 1958. I think it was when I first came to Little Rock at night. I, I had a sister live there, and I had made so many trips that I couldn't go to see no other relatives. I had to have a relative somewhere. <laughs> and uh, got out of a base to work off of, you know. <laughs> and my, my, my sister had uh, finished, went to Smith Lewis College here in Little Rock, and she had just graduated. She was teaching school, and her husband was uh, teaching school, and they had a couple of young kids. And so I said, you ought to go see your sister. You know, that's true. I haven't seen her in five or six years. You're not doing all right. So I I decided to go see her. And I ended up in Little Rock. It was just going to be for a few weeks, a few months, just maybe stopping off. And I got there that morning. It was on the bus about four o'clock, and I was broke. And uh, uh, I had all my world possessions in a little suitcase, about that long. A little small suitcase. Everything I owned was in that suitcase. I, I think about it now, when Charlie and I go into Europe or somewhere, we got to pack all that stuff. It didn't take me long to pack them. <laughs> but, you know, I, uh, you know, with them drunk suitcases, y'all know a drunk suitcase, a drunk suitcase got a latch, one latch on it, necktie, tie a necktie around him, on of them that's way drunk traveled in those days they still travel something like it they come in the treatment center every day but now they got these black garbage bags mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same accommodations you know <laughs> had a guy come in treatment center a few years ago and the guys know i'm always because i come by and check those bags see if he's a real alcoholic right <laughs> And the guy told me, he said, Joe, come here. He like, look at this guy He can't get sober. He's got alligator luggage. Man, you're dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, want real hard. I got him them black garbage bags. So I, I got there. And I, got, I got me a job right away. I got a job. My job. Um, My sister's a very religious person. See, at the day, she's she's real close to the church. She does a lot of good work in the church. She's retired now. She's been in school since 30 years. She retired and she still works in the church. My husband at that time, he's passed, but he was a lay speaker of the church. He later become one of the pastor of one of the larger United Methodist churches there in Little Rock. But these were young people, fine young people, church people, two little kids, and a drunk uncle. Huh? It was embarrassing. You know, it makes sure you untopple around those people. You know, you trying to lay in on a Sunday morning, somebody's back out cooking eggs. God, you know. Shining shoes, shoe polish, and, and all that stuff. And I'm trying to lay in and, and they invited me for a few weeks and then it finally seemed like they were threatening me. <laughs> <laughs> My security was threatened. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I, so I, I broke down with church with her that Sunday morning. That's where I met Lou Bell. I think God put Lou Bell in my life. Lou Bell was a great part of my life. Uh, I don't know where I'd be tonight without her. She she doesn't get away too much and come with me because she can take care of her mother. Her mother's in the nursing home mother 97 years old and Newbell Bell goes see her mother every day seven days a week and I don't fool with that I think she's doing what she's supposed to be doing right now anyway and Newbell would uh, I met New Bell in church that morning New Bell was my sister was a good friend and my sister's my sister uh, is a choir director and she's a, got a beautiful voice. She plays the organ and everything. She's been in music since she was a little, little thing, sitting her feet with a touch of floor. I remember banging on the piano when we was kids at home. But she stuck with it and uh, she was over the choir and Bell was in the choir. Now, the choir director and the choir members are pretty tight, they've been over the years. So I had a good front, you know, I had a good front, good camouflage. I had the lay speaker of the church and the organist. And uh, you know how we always operate by having fast conversation, these slow thinking ladies? <laughs> I gave them my best shot that morning. I tell you, I should have got an Academy Award for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I thoroughly convinced her how she, I'm still working on this suitcase, right? <laughs> now little girl got a, owns her own home, right? She got a good job, and she got a brand new car. And I tried to convince her how she needed me to take care of her. <laughs> 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 well, that was a good job. And, and you know, we, we met there, uh, and had a kind of a over relationship. We married about Christmas, right? Christmas Eve. And we married we married forty years, Christmas Eve. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't much of marriage at first. You know one thing about them, Alan, you might put it over on them, but they, they they catch on real fast. When they start learning when they start learning you're in trouble. <laughs> and they come on with a bang. And I didn't have any, it wasn't any marriage, it was just back and forth, I'm drunks, and she married me because I was two years of my drinking, I couldn't think of why. Worst time. And we didn't have any marriage for a couple of years, and, and I just stayed in trouble. And I'm still traveling right here, going up here, getting drunk, coming back. I was on one of these trips in Kansas City that I met a little wino in a bar. I never make that talk until I think about a van. God uses strange people in our night. Sometimes it's not the learning or the high and almighty. Sometimes it's just simple people. And this guy was a winery on the street. One morning I went to the bar to get a drink and his wine was in there and I didn't I wasn't necessarily a wine drinker unless my money said wine. <laughs> but anyway, they were trying to get a pint of wine. It was 60 cents. And back in the end of those days, they wouldn't give them a bottle for some reason. They'd pour it up in glasses. And this girl could pour this wine. Now, she'd just start the first glass, one, two, three. The artist say, give me a pint on four. That means four glasses. She'd go down there and have them. When she finished, they would all be level. Well, nothing perfect for alcoholics. They'd get out <laughs> and they would eye him up. Sometime they would go to hold a meeting on him. <laughs> but they would finally decide the that one guy's there not have a more than the other. And they gave that to the man who bought. Classy people, classy people. <laughs> I always got a lot of class. <laughs> So I began to talk Van and said, Joe, you know, you're a pretty nice guy. I knew that. <laughs> and he said, you're a lot different with me and a lot of the other guys down here on the street. I, I knew that too. And then he said, Joe, you got but one problem. I said, what's that, Van? He said, Joe, you're drinking too much. Thank God for Van. You know, I had heard, heard this from a lot of well-meaning people. But Van had the problem. Van was standing in the middle of one of the biggest problems I've seen in a long time.
2: <laughs> and for some reason or another, it stuck. It stuck. It, for the first time, it stuck. I,
1: it was strange. I did not figure out why Van got to me. I remember thinking about that and saying, yeah, yeah, i got to get out of here. i, I got to do something about this. And it that at me for two or three days. I finally decided all already wants to leave Kansas City to get what I had and get out of there and go home. And, I, 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 you know, we're and I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I didn't know what an alcoholic was, but I probably would have swore that I was But, you know, I came over to the conclusion. I said, Joe, I don't believe you can drink. That's your problem. Now, that's the beginning of it, but that ain't all the problem, but that's where I started learning the first half. I don't believe you can drink. After 13 or 14, 15 years of my drinking, I said, I don't believe you can drink. Now, you know, that's amazing how he learns it. And my problem is drinking. i got a drinking problem, and if you got a drinking problem, the solution is simple. All you got to do is quit drinking. Anybody can figure that out. So I quit drinking, and I found out grew up a little, in a couple of years that my problem was not
2: drinking.
1: My problem was quitting. In like fact, it wasn't even quitting, it was starting. I couldn't drink, uh, but I couldn't stop starting, that was my main problem. I had starter problems. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to come home. I decided I came back and I remember mean, I came coming back broke like I always come back down. town. And come on, I come home. I want to go home to see your wife. And I go home to she have a mouth stuck down. She'd be mad. I said, I come home just to see you. No matter how bad, yeah, not bad eh? It got a bad attitude. <laughs> but anyway. So I got a job and went to work. Quit drinking and didn't have a drink for nine months. And God, the most miserable time of my life. I look back today. But at the time, you know. It was a bit, it was it was good. Because at least, you know, I was going to work. I was paying the bills, I was doing something I was supposed to be doing, which I had done for years. <laughs> so at the time, even though I know it today it wasn't sobriety, it was it was good. Better than i had for a while. And I didn't know I was an alcoholic, I never didn't know anything about it, and one morning I took a drink. I know what the big book says, the day will come when we don't have to finish the first drink. I remember that morning very vividly. And all at once just popped in my head, you know, take a drink. And I just walked from, I was working, and I walked from old old liquor store bought it, brought it back in, so like Jim in the big book. When I took the top off of it, I said to myself, man, you're messing up. Drank. Six weeks later, uh, much March March, 10th, 1962, I was sitting on a bar, and I had that magic moment in my life. You know, that total defeat, and the opportunity, God gave me the opportunity to see it. I think it's a gift. I don't think I was capable of that. Um, But all at once, sitting there, I couldn't go no further. Uh, And I just gave up. You know, the funny thing, and I didn't know what to do. I never heard of alcoholics anonymous in Little Rock. It was there. But it was so anonymous, I didn't know it was there. And funny the funny thing, I was about four or five blocks from Alcoholics 9 And the so only thing I knew by help was the old state hospital. They said you could go out there and alcoholics, they'd help you. We didn't have any detox centers and nothing like that in those days. So, we, uh, I went out to the state hospital. I got off the bar, had $2 50 in my pocket, paid $2 cap for a nut house. And Dan was so, <laughs> I don't know Dan Dan's were, mine was state state hospital. And uh, you know, my ward, they had about 80 people on, my, I'm going say, they had black ward, had about 80 people on there, and about four alcoholics, the rest of them had some other kind of problems. I don't know what they had, but now they have a place to come off of a six week drunk. You try to shake and the watch eighty nuts at the same time <laughs> and you, you better not shut your eyes. <laughs> Why not, you know, what happens there? It's a different society. It's an altogether different society. Um, people don't talk to you when you go into a mental institution because they think you're crazy for coming in there. You know, you, you know I say, anybody figure that out. <laughs> anybody come in there, it's crazy. But so the alcoholics, uh, this is the only place where I've been in alcoholism was a status symbol. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> The alcoholics would, uh, aides would talk to us, right, give us some newspapers, newspaper, give us special privileges. We had visitors. So these men people had no visitors, they had no names or nothing, they were just numbers. No one ever came come to see them, them had been there for years and their families had never visited. They were just nine people. So it seemed like we were always getting attention. When you asked one of them what they was in there for, they said, oh, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> And he asked one of us alcoholicsmen, and we said nervous breakdowns, so... you <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> couldn't tell who was who. Well, I thank God for Aura. Orwell was a, a little alcoholic on the war. He wasn't a learned member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had two weeks of lockups for variety. And he had the big book. And he was the head alcoholic on the war. He <laughs> <laughs> was the old timer. <laughs> <coughs> and you know he uh i about Saturday, Saturday, I went out on Saturday and that Sunday, he came up and sat down beside me with the big book, he had the big book. We had one copy and they had left it there. In fact, it was amazing how that meeting got started. The woman, she's still living today. She retired from the system, but she was a young, young wow. social worker just starting a, out a college, just starting work at the state hospital black lady. She had all the black people in the state office. She had about 300 people, I guess, who was a social worker to work with. She said one summer, she had been there about two or three years, one summer they had a, uh, a trip to go to Yale University, Yale School of Alcoholism Studies. She said she had no interest in all the alcoholism, she knew nothing about it. She said, but I needed a trip. <laughs> That's right. She said I just needed a trip. And so she went to Yale University. School of Alcoholism Studies. And that's why she was there. A lot of people there were recovered alcoholics in that school. Bill Wilson was in that school several years. Noah and some other people. Um, But she said she was she went they took her and made her go to some meetings. They took her to some meetings. She said, I was fascinated with those meetings and those people. She said, I'm the most fascinating people I have ever met. And she said, when I get back to Little Rock, I'm see if I can find some of them people. And I started meeting on, our, on my ward. And she had started this meeting something like three months before I got there. And I had the book. And that Wednesday night, I always scream when I talk about this. And Wednesday night, the old aide dropped this paper, and he said, "All oh, you whiners, they ain't me." And I left the back porch at hospital 37 years ago. Because a little guy, drunk, told me that guys from he was coming, and he was going to bring bring out a pot of coffee, and that they would bring three packs of cigarettes and lay on the table. And I went out there for a cup of coffee and a cigarette, and God gave me a brand-new way of living. A way of living that I didn't know existed. And I know a little bit about heaven, and all I wanted out is this deal was a cup of coffee and a cigarette. And, and thank God it was a real alcoholic there, too. Um, I remember we were talking about these guys. And they, they they must have been examples he he didn't talk about the book. He didn't know nothing about the book, but he knew about these Amen. They'd been coming out there every week. And he talked incessantly about them. So this guy got up and he talked and and I I, I really I I he don't they don't understand my problem. I had a big problem, right? And this guy got up and told his he told about his problem. He said he he got in trouble when he was fourteen years old. And he got locked up until he was 18. He got out when he was 18, so he went to prison. He went to prison five times. And he was 38 years old, and he had been locked up all but six years of his life. And he said one day he was in Congress Penitentiary, and he he came up from the field, it rained, and somebody left a book on his bed. Entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, I read that book and I found a formula in that book to which I could change my life and get out of prison. It was kind of pretty sharp. And he said, I've been fool and I could take it. So he changed his life, went the program in a big book by himself in the prison. And he helped organize the first group in Cummings in the 50s. Now, you know when you're in prison and your life changes, you're gonna go fish Uh all the prisoners recognize his life change. The prison officials notice his life change. They notice the change in Charles. They give him a better job, give him a job teaching people how to read and write. Finally moved him up in the office. Finally, they put him up for parole. And he was paroled with 105 years against him. <coughs> And three holes. And when he met me he'd been out ten years. And he was sober. And when I heard this guy, I said, Hell, I ain't got no problem. (laughs) (laughs) I ain't got no problem. And was too charge that I could come to believe really just this one guy. You know, I um I again to, I went over that night, he was standing on the right side of the room, I he was drinking coffee, leaning, I leaning against the wall after me. I went over there, I said, man, I hear what you went through, uh, I asked him, I said, what do you think I should do, and the book says, you know, Try, do your story, let him ask you, and that's the way it happened that night, was I, was, I I went right up to it and bit on it, <laughs> and he was waiting for me, he was really waiting for me, he said, fella, I was telling you what I did. He said, "Frankie, I, I don't give a damn what you do." <laughs> I was shocked. He said, "Your problem." I was telling you what I did. Okay? He said, "Your problem is your business." Okay? And then he said, "But I tell you one thing: if you want me to show you what you what I did, I will show you. But I do not play." Okay? I ain't got no time for losers. I know we made a covenant right there. We started right there. And Charles showed me what he did. Charles was in my life for 31 years. But, you know, I got out of the hospital. No, one get out, I got busy. You know how alcohol is they got a lot of business to take care of. <laughs> uh, I didn't knock down the door and say, hey, I was going to, you know, I had some business to take care of. <laughs> didn't have no transportation. That's the funny thing about alcohol, he can't get across town to an AA meeting, but he, sober, but he can't get those California drunk. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I did this really didn't respond. On June, I got out of there March, of, in, April the 30th, April the 10th, rather. And I stayed sober, thank God I didn't drink. Well, on June 13th, 1962, I got a letter from O'Rourke, uh-huh. and O'Rourke said, uh, you know, I'm coming back to Little Rock today, meeting minute Wednesday night on the Ward E3 what the letter says. The folded up a piece of paper, I still had it in a frame, folded up a piece of paper out of the kid's tablet, wrote on one side, I don't have time to write you. I will see you there.
2: That's
1: what got me. I will see you there. So I went back to the me meeting at night, and I never left my apartment tonight. No, Orr didn't make this program. Orr stayed sober drunk, got drunk after about six months, and each time uh, Orr would get drunk, I'd go see him and talk to him. Detox center opened in 1965. Three years later, he would show up there about once every year. Every time he showed up, I would go to talk to him. In 1971, I opened the old treatment center and just had kind it of got started. One day a guy told me, he said, I got a friend of yours out here, Joe, need some help. And I had about nine years at that time and I went out there and here's this wreck of a little man that helped me so much. And didn't take then. He, a month later, he went around the curb in the car and was killed and ran to a barn, And he was killed. For some reason though, he never did, but he, you brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous that night. And I got caught up in this, this thing we call the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, this bond that runs between us. I didn't know a thing about it. And I remember that night going home. And I got home and Lou Bell's was always interested in everything I do. And she would say, well, what was it? What did it do? What kind of thing is it? I said, they don't do nothing much. Drink a lot of coffee, smoke a lot of cigarettes, it sure makes you feel good. I'll be right back next to it. <laughs> <laughs> now we don't know the magic of the fellowship. But that's against the healing power. That's the beginning. And Charles was yeah, uh, you know, you know, this was this was 1962. Yeah, I remember 1962 was a couple of years before the civil rights demonstrations. They were, they were already taking place in the, around the lunch counters and places. About six blocks from AA, they were having a demonstration on Main Street there in Little Rock. The school crisis thing was still going on. It was a bad time to be the first black in AA. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you,
1: know, just a, you know, my time always had been bad. <laughs> But <laughs> well, Charles, you know, I, I, I really, it took me many years to realize what he did. There was three out uh, three guys that really helped me. You know, their way of life was threatened by me, but they took me anyway. They got a lot of flack about that from the other people. But I went. And I went to the meeting and the move. But we're not to the former, we had an AA meeting was two AA meetings there, actually Little Rocket, there was two two meetings. They had two four meetings a week, two groups. Um, but they had meetings at the old dormitory every morning at seven o'clock. And this is where I I up. I didn't go to the, form, the real AA group. They met at night and I worked at night. But anyway, they carried me down. They told me I could come to the meeting, but I couldn't hang around. I couldn't drink coffee. I told them I was alright. I, I had a desire to stop drinking. People asked me, didn't that hurt you? I said, no, I had a desire to stop drinking. And that's all you need to get in this thing is that's the ticket. I talk about it all the time. You need a ticket, a desire to stop drinking is the only thing we we'll require. And I had that, thank God. So, you know, back in those days, it was different. You know, I've been part of AA to watch it change, watch it grow bigger and maybe away from what we really were. But when you come to AA in those days, you, uh, uh, you work the steps first before you could Participate in the fellowship. And like I said, if you hadn't worked the steps, you'd have an offer of the fellowship. <laughs> so what they would do in those days, you were required to work the steps in your first six weeks. And uh, they would put you through the steps and each morning I'd get an assignment on the steps, whatever step I was working on, I'd be there at seven o'clock. They'd meet and get an assignment, complete the assignment, bring it back next day, and we went through the steps just like that. We the did inventory, and after after about six weeks, they would uh, say that you have completed steps, and I'd like to sponsor them in the group. And that's what our sponsors did. So, you know, when you go to something new, you don't know what's going on, you don't know about it. They tell you do something, you usually do it anyway. I mean, you just do it. You, everybody else is doing it, and we were all required to do that. And uh, you know, I remember. The part, I remember five or six weeks I was there, and I was doing all these things. And it's like the book said. I didn't think I was making any progress at all. Other people told me I was doing pretty good. Things are getting better from me. You're doing better. One day I was uh, staying at work for about six, seven weeks, and For the first time I could comprehend the word serenity. Serenity has to be something you have to experience. First time I was able to experience serenity in my heart. And I said, this must be what that guy was talking about down there. And I knew I knew, I knew you'd pay peace and you haven't. And I, began, I realized that day, I said, if I could cling to this, if, it, if I could hold this, I would never have to drink again. And you know, it was, you know, we worked the steps, and the first step didn't, I didn't have no, you know, I, I, I knew I was paralyzed with I was just glad to see why. Huh? And he said, I become willing. Wellness is the key. And throughout the step, they talk about wellness. Now, willingness is real simple. Nothing fancy about it. Willness, when you're thoroughly convinced 100 percent that what you're doing is never going to work,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: then you become willing to look at something else. <laughs> That's all it is. Well, willingness is the foundation of recovery. You know, a word, I looked it up one day and it said, Willness is a state of the mind that allows you to believe, step two, to decide, step three, and to act, the rest of the steps. Willness is the foundation of those steps. So I began to, you know, I began to to work with people right away. one of blacks around, but was just alcoholic. By that time, there was no... After about four or five weeks, I forgot who I was except me, the alcoholic, like everybody else. All that stuff disappeared. We forgot about it. I began to work with other guys there, and I, I would go down there every morning. Just like I said, for about five years, I went down there every morning that meeting. That was my life. That was my recovery. Um, I began to, to go to the county forum, the county prison. I went down there about 10 years every Sunday morning, carrying the meat. And you know, this was my first experience in working in that area. After about nine years in the program, uh, 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 the treatment field, first time anything was, the general public uh, had had anything for federal The government appropriated money to set up treatment programs in different communities. And there was an agency there in Rock that that had received one of these grants for $37,000 to run a county program. But I had uh, an instant jar of coffee every Sunday morning and some water and a big pot. So that seemed like a great opportunity to help people. I was really reluctant. I didn't know what it was all about, but this is where I got started working in the field. And through that, I was able to get the syringe out, started in the middle of incorporated, got it started, and I'm still there today. Uh, it's been twenty-eight years. We over eighteen thousand people. So really, you know, I feel very blessed tonight that it's not a wrong thing that happened in my life. And, you know, I think one of the greatest things that, that God created me and he created you, and when you create something, you, create it. you don't create something for nothing, you create it for something. And all of us are created for some purpose. I think the happiest way I ever going to be is when we fulfill that purpose. And I'm at that point in my life today where I fulfill, leave, I'm i fulfilling God's purpose in my life. Because so as I said, this is why I'm becoming an alcoholic. It it's not hard to do what I do. I had to recover to do what I do. And so I feel real happy and comfortable where I'm at today. What I'm doing in, in my life. You know, uh, uh, I read a story about this little woodpecker. He covered it sometime. He was pecking on a tree, big oak tree. And uh, at the same time he was pecking on it, a big bolt of lightning came out of the sky and hit the tree. And this toad totally happened to it. And all the other woodpeckers flew in for miles around. I said, man, what in the hell did
2: you do? <laughs> That's it.
1: <laughs> and he said, well, I was just doing what I was doing, what I was supposed to be doing, and God did the rest. Thank okay. you.
0: Joe McHugh you can find his book on Amazon the steps we took very highly um, recommended thank you so much for coming to today's podcast let's go ahead and pray with the Our Father Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread And forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It's working. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs we'll start with step 12. to
1: get to step step 12 and it's a long way we started at the first step in our review and the first step was the foundation of all of this and the before tonight and talking about the 12 step we're going to get it right around, because this thing just goes right around from 1 to 12, and 12 back to 1. But we begin at the first step, the foundation of recovery, was what is the problem? As we said, this is, uh, I think it's the greatest thing on the face of the earth for an alcoholic, Uh, was Alcoholics Anonymous, because Alcoholics Anonymous is about the only place where a drug can find out what's wrong with it. uh, every place else a drunk goes, they tell him what to do. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous tells him what's wrong with him, and then he'll know what to do. Uh, but uh, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it was through it was on a 12-step call, again, through another alcoholic. About the only way an alcoholic can find out where he is is through another alcoholic, you know? I could identify with this man. And, and I found out in the first step the exact nature of my problem. The first step says we're powerless over alcohol. And our lives have become unmanageable. And it talks about the two factors which make me powerless. I had a physical allergy to alcohol. I was an abnormal drinker. They called me a lot of other things, but really that's what I was. <laughs> I like what a guy says, that's a nice word for what they used to call me. When I was an abnormal drinker, I did not drink like so-called normal tempered drinkers. When I took a drink, something occurred within me that did not occur in these people, because I, had, I, had, I was allergic to alcohol. When I took a drink, you know, I had a, a phenomenon of, cra- I had a craving of alcohol. And this craving, was, <clears throat> this craving was a manifestation of this allergy. When I took a drink, this craving would start, and the doctor said I would go through the well-known spree. And, and once I took a drink, all, all my life, I can't remember ever taking a drink without immediately wanting another drink, and another drink, and another drink, and another drink. And, another drink. and this is still what amazes, amazes me about social drinkers today that they do not really, they don't crave alcohol. They take one and they may, they may not take another one, but they don't want no more. In fact, they, you know, they tell us when they take a drink, it really makes them, after a couple of drinks, it becomes nauseous to them, it makes them kind of dizzy, and it gives them a sense of being out of control. And it's really an uncomfortable feeling, and that's the way you should feel if you put some bad stuff in you like alcohol, because alcohol is a toxic drug. And a body normally has, a, lets us know when they don't like what we put in it. <coughs> but, but the alcoholic's body, uh, like a guy I know of North Carolina, he said, he said everybody's got an alcohol strainer. You know, every, everybody comes as made When they come here on face of this earth, they got equipment to strain alcohol out, except the alcoholic, his is busted. We have a busted <laughs> strainer. <laughs> and once I take a, a drink of alcohol, I do not feel nauseous and dizzy and out of control. When I take a drink of alcohol, I get a, a, a lift. When I take a drink of alcohol, I get a sense of being in control. And immediately, I have a craving for a second drink. So I reach over and take another drink. And when I take that second drink, I, I, put, I put two in there, and now it's double. So I crave harder. Well, I take another one and another one and another one. I go through the well-known spree and get in a lot of trouble, drink too much. I embarrass myself. I do something. I always did something. From the very first drink, very first night, I, just, I went beyond what I, what I would have done in every time in my life. And I would emerge like every alcoholic down at the bar when I quit drinking. I said, I will never do that again but that wasn't my main problem. My main problem was in my mind. I had a mental obsession. <coughs> See, alcohol did something for me that it didn't do for those people. Uh, I had this uh, all my life. The doctor says I was restless and urban and tent. You know, I, I just didn't fit in. I just didn't feel just as good about myself as I seemed to be. Always, there was something missing in my life. And somewhere along the early, when I was about 18 years old, I took this first drink. You know, things came together. I remember that night very vividly. That's what the doctor said. I remember my first drink. I don't know, that's not a prerequisite to being alcoholic, but I don't remember my first uh, banana split. Didn't. <laughs> didn't do nothing for me. I don't remember my first Coca Cola, Dr. Pepper, a pork <laughs> I don't remember none of those. But I remember my first drink, I remember the people I was with, what brand it was, wherever it was at, and I remember. So the doctor said, We remember the sense and ease and comfort that came at once by taking a few drinks of alcohol. And I, when I, so it, it must have meant something to me. When I took those few drinks, this is the thing that, that, that stuck in my mind and was burned into my mind. And you know, it was so strong that, that even with all the pain and suffering I went through and humiliation from alcohol, after coming off of one of those things and after getting into trouble, all these situations, this the sense of ease and comfort that alcohol gave me, I remember that stronger than I did all the pain it was so strong that it would push out all the pain years and years of pain and the only thing I could think of was this sense of ease and comfort and so I would believe that lie and this was what would make me take that first drink and once I put that first drink in my system it set off the phenomenal craving and I was in a lot of trouble so long as I had that in my mind I was powerless over alcohol the main problem of was in my mind, this obsession. Remembering that sense of needs an and comfort. So once we once we have these two things make us powerless over alcohol. The second step is very simple and it's based on the first step. You know, if we are powerless, the solution is power. And obviously this power would have to work in the mind. We can't we can live with the allergy. So therefore, the second step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And we, if it, we could remove this obsession, if we didn't we weren't restless and the urban discontent, we would never think about this about this sense and ease and comfort because we would be already comfortable. So the second step talks about we believe this is the solution to this problem. And then we come to the real program of recovery. You know, once we do this, this is a foundation, and and if alcoholic can get to this point, he hasn't done anything at this time, but the first time he can see where he's at, step one is what's going on with him, and he has a solution. Now, the main thing now is to find this power. You know, if you're a powerless over here, and the solution is power, then the main job is, well, let's find this power. How do we find this power? This is the main purpose of the book and the program is to enable us to find a power greater than ourselves, which will solve our problem. So the first step in finding this thing is a decision. All action begins with decision. And he says, you know, we have a decision, we can decide, we can make that, we look at these things and decide do we want to be powerless or do we want this power? We have to decide between these things. And we make a decision, if it's the, we make a decision, all of us will choose the power. And if we choose this, then we have to give up certain things. You know, we have to give up our will. Now, we alcoholics have got a lot of that. You know, that's one thing about alcoholism, is to recover from alcoholism, we gotta give up property the two things that we love the most. Number one is alcohol, and number two is self-will. Boy, those that's tough. That's a tough decision. So we make a decision here to turn over our will, and this is simply our directions of our life. Over care of God's will understand. It. And then we go to work to do this. There's certain work's gotta be done. So we have the the action steps, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. These are the action steps that carry out the decision. And as we said earlier, you know, we alcoholics are our self-will run right our book says. There are certain things that within us that block us off from God. Our book, and throughout it, talks about this thing is within us. God is within man. All great philosophers talk about that. Deep down, every man, woman, and child form their own conception of God. Many years ago, a man said that The kingdom of God is within man. All philosophy is taught. We have some guidance. We have some directions. And we know how to live. I've never seen an alcoholic that didn't know how to live. He didn't know right from wrong. But he simply seemed like he couldn't get it to work. I always didn't know what to do. And the only time I used it was after the fact. You know, the next morning I said, God, you know you shouldn't have done that. That was the story of my life. But I just couldn't live with it up front. It was there. But it was covered up. You know, it was covered up by calamity, by pomp, by worship, of other things, by worldly things and my emotions. But it was always there. So step four is all about carrying out the decision. If I wanted God to to direct my life, there are certain things within me that I have to get rid of. And step four is all about uh, inventory and analyzing these things. And, I, and we talked about we went through with resentments, and I saw how these things dominated my life, and I saw how these things uh, controlled and run my life on a daily basis. We talked about uh, fears. We talked about our sex conduct of the past, and we listed and analyzed those things. In step five, we were we learned more about them by discussing them with another human being, with God and ourselves another human being. And it improved on the information that we got in step four. And once we got these things out and looked at them and seen the damage and effect of our lives and how they were blocking us, then in step six, we become willing to get rid of them. And in step seven, we ask God to remove them. So in these four steps, we went to work on ourselves. And then the next phase of steps, talks, eight and nine, talks about our relationship with others. These are things, too, that have grown out of self, the damage of the past. So in eight and nine, we worked on our relationship with others, and then in step 10, we went back and continued to work on uh, on our, our relationship with God. We'll to continue to work on ourselves. We'll continue to work on our relationship with others. And we we went back in the process of step 10 And continue to clean up all three general areas. Once we got these things out of the way and these things that blocked us from God, then in step eleven, we were able to receive God into our lives. We were able for the first time to 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 carry out the decision in step three. You know, the whole we said the whole steps were about three making the decision to turn over our will. Clearing out the things that block us with these steps, and then in step eleven, we, step eleven, we receive God's will. So it's a changing of directions, of self-directions to God's direction. So step eleven is really the final part, and this is this is the ultimate area that we come to now. Twelve comes right after eleven, having had. If you had eleven, if you were able to receive God's direction, you have had a, a spiritual experience. But then step twelve tonight says, you know, having had this, now we give it away. Now we have something to give. And I think this is the you know, the real strength of a, a probably one of the most most vital steps in my life. I said of all these steps, which are all giving steps. The things that bring to your life. Possibly one of the most single things that affected my life is is the twelfth step. That, that actually we grow more through giving than we do through receiving in the first eleven. The twelfth step is a very big growth step. We grow through giving. And I know when I first come to a, hey, this is a. I know all of this sounds funny. After you hear the night the first time, they like, say, how are you going to grow through giving something away? Okay. But it's been said many times, you know, many thousand years ago, the man said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it's more blessed to give with the 12th step than to receive through all the level that we do grow through giving. Now the 12th step is up. Uh, is uh, very precise step in the big book and reasoned up I don't know why Bill, I guess you know the foundation of AA depended on that because it wasn't but a 100 people to begin with and we can see the power of that of the millions the million or so people that are sober as a result of 100 people starting the 12th step and uh, the 12th step is very specific now we read it off and uh, I I um, Sometimes we run through it real fast and we don't hear it being read. I like to specifically be to, to look at it and, and when we talk about it and get all the words and see what he's saying. He says, Having had a spiritual awakening, he says, as the results of these steps. Now, it? it's that he didn't say a results. He said, as the results. So, that means that the 11 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't give you but one resu- one thing, the results. A spiritual awakening. Uh, and we've said as we went through that, you know, that was a, a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. And if you have a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism, uh, you don't have to not drink anymore. You're not the same person. You're not the person you were. You've had a change in your life, and Bill said a spiritual experience is very simple. I mean, it's no big deal. They said when you can believe, when you can think, when you can feel, and you can do things that you couldn't do on your on your own unaided. And that's very simple, you know. And I think it's quite obvious. You know, people say, well, you know, I, I can I can feel things that I couldn't feel before. I can feel love. Before I used to think it was coming in heat. You know, but I can feel love. I can can feel concern for another person. Many, many things that I couldn't feel before. I I don't believe the same. I used to believe God kept score (laughs) on you. You know what I mean? And when when you got out, like I did, so far behind, he just said, well, you're out of the game. You know? I used to believe that. Well, I used to believe many of these that uh, I can do things that I couldn't do before. Obviously, the main one I can stay sober. So, step twelve is the ultimate step. You know, all of these steps are steps at which we take, bring things to you. All you got to do is work them, and they just—you don't do nothing. The first 11 steps are, are brings, bring, brings all these good things into your life. The 11 steps are all things that we take. We When we first come in, we, we're just like babies. These are just, they just give to us. We don't do nothing. We work the steps, and the steps bring these things into our life. The 12th step is a step in which we give. And eleven receive, and through the twelfth, the twelfth one we give. You know, We receive from, from the first eleven, and then the twelfth, having had, then we can give. You know, many years ago, was a, a man said that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. We so get more blessings from giving. And so it's all hinges on this 12, and really the 12, as we say, when we get down to it and look at it, this has got a lot to do with the first step. You know, the first step, we, we, we saw where we were and we got the answer. And I saw where I was through another alcoholic. And in step two, it says we come to believe, and once we come to believe, that's the beginning. And once we believe, we have to make a decision in step three. And once the decision, we have to take some action which is four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And once we work those steps, we get the promises of the book. We get the promises on page 83 and 84 and 84 and 85. And once these promises are fulfilled, then we know the program works. And the 12th step is saying, if you know the program works, if you have gotten results, if you have had experience of the results of these steps, then you know it works. You don't believe, you used to believe it's step two. But if it works, then you know it works. You have faith. And the one who knows, that's a 12-step person, wants you to get the 12 steps, then you know. Now what you know, you are supposed to carry it back to the new man. And he can look at you. And you can help him know. But by looking at you, he can begin to believe and he can get started. This is the way I, I started, you know, There was a guy named Charles and, and I remember it was uh, almost 25 years ago, I walked, he walked into, he, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous came to me. I was uh, in a position where I couldn't get there. I was locked up. And I was locked up in this nut house and, Bars on the windows with about 80 other nuts. And uh, so that part anonymous came to me. And this guy came in there that night, and I remember, I always tell about it, and I went to my first AA meeting because the little guy had been nice to me. And and God uses strange people to work in our life. You know, it isn't the high and the mighty and the learned. he, He didn't choose those kind of people. This guy uh, let me sit around about two days before he said anything to me. But I finally found out what was going on in this instance, in this place, and why they didn't talk to you too much, and why, you know, because, see, were all these nuts was in there. Now, what happens, see, all, if you ask one of them nuts what he was doing in there, all of the nuts said they were alcoholics. Well, oh, I'm alcoholics. It's the only place I have never been before I since where alcoholism was a status symbol. On this board, on this it was a, you was, you know, but I, all of the, I, what happened, see, we alcoholics got good treatment on the war. The mental patients never got, you know, nobody really cared anything about the mental patients. There was about 75 mental patients in there. And some of these people that had been there, there was one man that had been there, actually since he was six years old he was 36 and that was his life in there uh, in fact I still see him when I go to that hospital on the on the ground at Benton unit he'd been there all his life there were many people like that at this time and this was all they knew this was their home and it's all they knew now we alcoholics didn't stay for 30 days in those days it really wasn't, they didn't do anything to us, it wasn't much of a treatment, but they, uh, we got good treatment. We had visitors. The aides would talk to us, and they treated us different than they did the mental people. So the mental people saw this, and uh, when you ask one of them in there, they say, I'm an alcoholic. See, they wanted to be in the class. They wanted to be big shots like us. <laughs> Now we alcoholics. When you asked us what was wrong with us, we said nervous breakdowns. You know, you know, you know. You know, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I said, hey, I, I talked, talked about this a lot of times, and it really, it does. It gets to me to, to think, you know, about how God works in the human life. And what about the 12th step It's the most important thing in my life. That Monday morning, I got in there on Saturday, that Monday morning, got a little, a little patient, one of the alcoholics on the ward, and I loved the worker. I, I love Paul. Ora was my 12-step my man. Ora wasn't a learned man in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I think most of us think, well, I gotta meet somebody in A are the leader of a, a, which we don't have by the way. I wanted a lead You know, I wanted you know, an expert. I didn't get it. <laughs> my approach to Alcoholics my first contact to Alcoholics was a mental patient on the ward. He had about two weeks of locked up sobriety in <laughs> He had a big book, of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had a carton of caramel cigarettes. <laughs> and you know what got me? You know, I was, I had fifty cents when I got there, and this guy had a, and I blew it on one pack of cigarettes and a couple of candy bars. I blew cigarettes for thirty cents in those days. And this guy sat down beside me that morning with a, with a big book, of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a carton. Of now, he didn't have a carton, but I seen him going in there and getting them from the aid out of his carton. Now, nobody on, our, on this ward had a, had, a, had, a, had a, even a pack of cigarettes. Now, I love the work of Paul. You know, Paul says God's grace is sufficient. And that's about what God is in our life. God ain't no big deal. God in the human life is just enough for every day. He's got a lot of folks to take care of, and all it was enough of me. You know, I didn't have a need to need no learned person. All I had the book, had a carton of Camel cigarettes, and reading attracted me because they had these cigarettes. And I didn't have any smokes, you know. I'm talking about your life is unmanageable. I can see how unmanageable my life was. Here I am, i broke, no cigarettes. They give me some roll your own tobacco. Boy, he ought to see me in that wrestle with that stuff. Just coming off a drug and I'm shaking it. And I never rolled one in my life anyway. You never rolled a cigarette in my life. One a cigarette so bad. And here I am doing this and get it all wet and fall down. Fall in my lap. The only way I and talk about the manageability. All I could smoke was take my tobacco and paper and give it to one of them nuts and let him roll it and, and give it back to me. <laughs> And here this guy got a whole carton, man, sitting there, and a big book. And he comes up to me, and we get to talk. And he he talks about, for many years, I used to say, or talk to me about, we talked about the book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, but we didn't. Or didn't know anything about it. I surely didn't know anything about it. Or had probably been to two meetings. But I think it's so important to me tonight and to, if for the rest of my life, in some way, to live the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we are living examples, whether we, we think it or not, in our community. We are, we are living big books, you know. And that's why it's important, because there might be somebody out there. We might be, our lives might be examples to, to somebody. Well, that's why I'm here tonight, because there was a guy, a man, that was living the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was coming to the hospital every every Wednesday night. And Ora didn't talk about the big book. Orr talked about this man. Ora talked about him incessantly for three days. He told me all about it. And that Wednesday night, uh, this is when things when I went to my first meeting. I went to my meeting because Ora had been nice to me. And this is where these guys came and and what they did basically is just like the book says. These guys come in there, and they, I expect them to, to meddle in my business. You know, usually do-gooders. I thought they was do-gooders. They say, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do that. But this guy come in real nice and got up there, and all three of them started talking about their own life. You know, that's funny thing. That's what a 12-step call is. When we go to a new alcoholic, we sit down, and they did it real good that night. We tell him our story. We tell him, "I experienced." Which the books says, start, books that see your man alone, learn something about him. And when you sit down, with him begin to tell him about your alcoholism, tell him how baffled you were. Tell him about the problems in your life. That's what a twelve-step call is all about. See, because that uh, that drunk is lost. This I look like I was lost 25 years ago. I was lost. And these guys sat down and told me their story. And when they told me their story, I was able to find myself in them. They just laid down their lives. They said the greatest gift that an individual is given is one who lays down his life for another. Not physically, but you lay down your experience, your problems. And because if they had did it, I would have never been able to find, I was so mixed up. And so lost, but I never would have found where I was. I never would have seen the first step, but I saw my first step through then. He did exactly like the book says, do it. So let him ask you, what did you do? <clears throat> and this guy I talked to him. we go out on a 12-step call. It's, it's all about him. another, if there's another alcoholic anywhere tonight, or it was one here. and he's lost. He's lost in his life. He's lost just like I was. He's lost in the, in the problem of alcoholism. He's lost in the confusion of alcoholism. And the only way he's going to ever find himself is to is find another part of identification. How do you, how, how can you, if you're lost, how do you, if you got to have something to identify with? And this man walked in there and he told his story. He told me about his life. He told me about his predictability. He talked incessantly about where he was, what trouble he was in his life. And it sounded like mine. I said, man, for the first, that guy, is, I'm, I'm just like that guy. He, I was able to tie onto something. You know, I was just like throwing out a lifeline. I was able for the first time in all this confusion. And this guy told his story. He, and that's what, it, what we do on the 12-step call. is we talk about, on a 12-step call, we talk about our powerlessness over alcoholism. We talk about our first steps. That's right. You know, I went there, I was mad, like most of them. I was mad, you know, i, I don't want to go this old damn old meeting. What time is it over?
2: Hear
1: me. <laughs> Somebody, you're nice you the same thing. <laughs> what time is it over, what time is it over, you know? and. This guy got up there, and I said, if he's going to meddle in my business, I know, that, you know every all-do-gooders, you know, I had him figured. I didn't know a thing about AA, but I thought it would be like, I figured it out, something like the Plainclothes Salvation Army. The same thing, didn't have no uniform, but the same kind of outfit. Because I'm going to tell you what to do. So this guy come in there, and he, didn't, he talked about himself. He talked about himself so much at night that when he had, he caught my ear. I was able to identify with him. And my attitude began to change, and I went over and asked him, I said, what do you think I should do? Boy, I remember he looked down at me, and he said, I don't give a damn what you do. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm telling you what I did. And I think this is, you know, this is what really turned me on about this. You know, I don't talk about that a lot, but you know, the guy that, that had the cigarettes, the guy that was there, Kind of difficult at time, but the guy that was there, the guy, the little guy had the cigarettes, the little guy that sat down and gave me cigarettes and, and, and talked to me about these guys and alcoholics normally. know, this guy I never was able to stay sober. Stay sober six months. And he got drunk. This was in 1962 and 1965 when the Benton Detox Center opened up. I remember when it opened. Uh, uh, it was over a little while, and, and they brought this little guy to the detox center, the same guy. Uh, he never, he was sick, and they called me to go down there to see him, and I had maybe two and a half years or three years sobriety, and I went down to visit with him. On several occasions after that, three or four years, he would end up at the detox center again, and I would go down to see him. Uh, once, I was at, went to his home down in the Southern Forest State to visit with him. Uh, about 89 years after that, when the syringe house was first opened at the old syringe house, a guy came to me one day and he said, here's uh, a friend of yours needs some help. And I said, who is it? And he said, it's aura And I went out there in the back of a car. It's, he, it's this guy laying in there. And he, didn't, he didn't even resemble the same person that, that I'd known 10 years ago. But that was a guy who brought me the message. Uh, about a, Less than three or four months after that, he went around the curb in an automobile, and he was killed. This guy never got the message he brought me. So, you know, so our responsibility is not to see that the message works. We, do, you know, only, we can only recover through a spiritual experience, and that's beyond our power. We're not healers. We don't have the responsibility to choose. And I'm glad we don't. If we could heal first we say, I'm going to fix this one over here. And if we had the responsibility to choose who gets this message, I probably wouldn't be here because I don't think I would have been chosen. Maybe you wouldn't have been here. Maybe you wouldn't have been chosen. So our responsibility is to carry this message to other alcoholics and and let the message take care of itself. You know, uh, if it takes, okay. My book says if the person wants it, Hey, help it. If you don't want it, leave him alone. I'm sure you can find somebody else. I mean, you know, we're not supposed to force this on anybody. We're not supposed to prize the people's lives. Our job is simply to carry, our responsibility is carry this message. And we grow through giving. Whether, whether, whether it works, whether it takes, whether it helps another individual, it doesn't matter. We grow through giving. But once you find one, Learn something about his background, how to approach him, and said, "Tell, tell him about your drinking first. You know, that's, tell him about your experience with alcohol. Tell him how you were, you know, how baffled you were. Tell him about this, uh, this, uh, this allergy to alcohol, and then tell him about, you know, your, your mind. Tell him how, how you tried to stop and how you failed, and let the man identify with all these little things in your life." Then after, he says, after you do that, he said, then tell him what your solution is. And this is about the only thing that we do on a 12-step call, and as an alcoholic, but the only thing I can do is, is do that. I can, I can share my experiences. I can share my experiences with the problems with alcohol. And then I can tell the person, if he's interested, in what my answer was. And if he's interested in this, that I can walk with him through this plan program of action. This is what I, if we read our book. It tells us about twelve steps. It tells us what sponsorship is all about. It tells us how to work with other alcoholics. In we work with other alcoholics the same way we recover with this program. We show them what their problem is. We show them what the solution is. And then we walk with them through this plan program of action. It's a very simple thing to do. We shouldn't be familiar with it because we have applied it to our lives, and, and we have the answers. You know, we, we, we have the answers to alcoholism. We have the answers to alcohol. We have experienced alcohol. alcoholism. We're the only people on the face of this earth. You know, we hear about all these people. You can see a lot of on TV about do this, do this, do this. This will help you, this will help you. Boy, I'm telling you, I mean, they didn't have those things. I'm glad they didn't have them and I was around. They confused the hell out of us but we in Alcoholics Anonymous, regardless of what anybody says, and we have no, well, we're not in competition with anybody, but we in Alcoholics Anonymous are the only people in the world who have experienced alcoholism and recovered from it. We are. We are the only people in the world who have experienced alcoholism and recover from it. So we have a vital message. Huh? A vital message for the world. Right? And all of us have a purpose in life. You no, know, God created everybody in here for a purpose. You know, I created, I created, I, create, I didn't create us for us. He created us for his purpose. And I think everybody The happiest we're going to ever be in life is when we find, you know, why were we created? What purpose are we to serve in life? I think oil was a purpose in my life. And I think one of the most important things in my life that, you know, to be able to sometimes feel like that I'm fulfilling my purpose. And this this gives some... uh, some purpose to my alcoholism. Maybe this is why I suffered alcoholism. Maybe this is why I recovered. Mm-hmm. To, to help other people. To carry this message to other people. And the more we, as we fulfill our purpose, you know, the more rewarding our life gets. You know, it talks about it in the big, big book. It talks about this, this light. You know, if our candle is lit, then we put it under the bush. And and do we? This is not just a, a light itself. It's enlightenment. This this light can light up another life, another person that's lost. And I think this is our responsibility, having having to walk into into this light, that we pass this light some way to another individual. Uh, and it, sometimes you know we return and and. Uh, and some of them say, you know, to say thank you. You know, this is really, this is a gift. You know, I think God was good enough to work in my life to give me this, this new way of life, and, and this is my responsibility. You know, God don't want nothing. I can. He never, you know, I used to say, if you do this, I'll do that. He don't make no deals, because he didn't need nothing I had. <laughs> he didn't need nothing I had. But he said, uh, if you appreciate what I've given you, if you really appreciate what I've given you, don't do it for me. I don't need anything yet. Give it to another person. This is also the 12th step. Well, I think through God's grace, a gift unwarranted, we were not chosen, but we were given this, thing. And our job in the 12th step is to carry this message, this message that I have recovered as a result of these steps. This is the message we carry to other alcoholics. Now, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes that we all do with all these steps. And 12 to, you know, the 12th step is showing us about starting a guy on the first step, showing him where he is. For many years, the first few years I've come to the program, I, I started drunks out on the third step. <laughs> I'd go to him and say, you need God man." <laughs> Poor guy, he didn't know what's the matter with him, you know. <laughs> some of them, some of them I started out on in the inventory. <laughs> but we have a precise way of doing this. Give that person a chance. You know, Bill, Bill made this mistake. Bill, Bill made this mistake and he, you know, we followed the same path. Bill had this vital spiritual experience in his life. Man, he... It was such a, it is, it was such a, it is an overwhelming thing to find change in your life. So he, he immediately left the hospital and for six months he was running all over New York talking to drunks, trying to give them this great experience he had, trying to give them his recovery program. Just before going to Akron, he happened to be down to Towns Hospital and Dr. Silverberg called to him in one day. And talking to Dr. Silkworth, you know, Bill didn't have, any, didn't have any plan to what he was doing. He said, Bill, why don't you quit talking to them drunks about your recovery? Why don't you quit talking to them drunks about your spiritual experience? Why don't you quit talking to these new people about this great thing you had? And why don't you start telling them what I told you about what is their problem, their illness? Start... Maybe if you showed them what they were, where they are, if you told them what was wrong with them, then maybe they would buy into your program. So this is why I'm a 12-step call. You know, we talk, we're talking to a person that's lost. We're talking to a person who's confused. We're talking to a person who's trying to identify with something. So the first step is the beginning, and we lay the foundation for everything we're gonna do with a new person. I thank God that my sponsor, that night, when he walked in there that night, he was—it was a classic to me, because I was able to see where he was. And I found on the twelfth, on the Madison final part of the twelfth step, it says it that, that we practice these principles in all our first. You know, and over in our book, after it wrote the twelfth chapter, wrote out, it talks about there that. that uh, These are are principles after the step that talks about the principles. They are guides to progress. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. So the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a set of principles. These are the principles that we practice in all our affairs. And after all, if they, they worked on the worst problem in our life, why not use them on other things? The, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, as Bill said, they're old as man can himself. The principles uh, are, are, can be found in any great living program. There's nothing new. No, there's no new, new principles to the way a man should live. And in fact, you know, if we've come back uh, on the face of this earth two or three thousand years from now and men are still here, the principle of living is going to be the same. Yeah, a principle is something that don't change. Like what goes up, gonna come down. It's been doing that for thousands of years. <laughs> and it always what goes up it's gonna come down. A principle is really a, a law that is seemed to have been acted by something greater than us. Right? Laws by a power greater than ourselves. We, 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 live, we see these principles. And they never change. Now, so there is a design to the living. There's a design to, to everything that we do. There's a design to everything on the face of this earth. And we usually, uh, it's funny thing how we usually know these things and apply them in, our, in all areas of our life except to living. Everything on this earth has a design to it. And that's what our book says. Our book has given us a design of living. You know, as we said throughout, you know, the first thing is to get the inside together. One, two, and three. Uh, the spiritual life. Four, five, six, and seven is the mind. Eight and nine is our relationship with others. We there's a design to life. And once we once we can live by this design and live within this design and function as human beings should function then we will, have, we will have peace, we will have serenity, we will have a comfortable, happy life. If we live our lives as they were designed. Yeah, but it, what, my trouble was, I, I lived beyond my, my capabilities. I tried to run the show myself. My book, everything has an uh a limitation to it, everything has a design, and that was my problem. I I didn't have any principles. No one ever showed me how to live in my life. I I, I thought from a great family, and I was around a lot of great people, and I was exposed to some people, some well-meaning people in my life. All of them tried for some reason or I went to school, I went to college, so. And I went to many, many different places. I around a lot of great people, Everybody tried. They all talked. I remember listening to all that stuff. and of that I didn't like. God, I mean. Everybody told me a lot of things in my life. Alcoholics Anonymous is the first group of people who ever told me how to live. They gave me the directions for living. And that's what the principles are, directions. They said, hey, here's how you live. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Then say, if you get it, carry it to somebody else and show him how to live.
0: It's that simple.
1: All those years, no one told me how to do it. Now, the rest of them went about it a different way. (laughs) They didn't show me how to live. They gave me the rules. But you know, there's a whole lot of difference with you than the principles and rules. Uh, When you ain't got the principles, you'll break all the rules. And that was my trouble. Rules and me had it. I mean, I hated rules. But I found out once the people at Alcoholics Anonymous gave me the directions, I didn't have a lot of problems with the rules. So, So the principles are really the directions of the laws to live by. These are the laws in which man should live by. And there there are directions that come with everything. Like, say, everything on Earth has. You go to buy something, you open up the product. When you open the box, they got a lot of paper in the box, and you probably have to put it together, too. (laughs) But somewhere in that box, you're going to find a little white slip of paper with some little instructions to say, you know, tell you how to use this thing you just bought. And if you will, which many of us don't, but if you would take that out and read it, <laughs> you know what I mean? If you would read that thing, take time out and read it, it might sound stupid. And I know you're smarter than that. I, you know, I'm i always smarter than them things that people put in them things. <laughs> and they look kind of dumb. But if you read them and apply them to that thing as you use it, you know it'll last longer. <clears throat> You'll get better service out of it. And they'll even, and if you send it back in, they'll even give you warranty on it if you use it like they told you to. Of course, if you use it like you told you to, you probably ain't going to leave nothing back. Now, everything on earth has a set of directions on how to use. Surely, you know, man, we are the most, we are the highest, and there is a set of directions for man to use his life. And that's what these principles are. And they haven't been hidden. They're in the Bible. They're in many great living books. And they are all the same. Now, the wording might be different. Uh, it might sound different. But the way to live, there is but one way to live. And surely uh, we, uh, we follow these directions. And apply them in our lives, and live our lives the way God designed us to. Then we will have peace and contentment, and all the great things that we're looking for in life. And surely, by God, surely we won't be restless and irritable and discontent, and have to drink alcohol in order to live. Anybody that's drinking alcohol and taking drugs, you know, to live, is not following directions. He's not using his life within the design and just as the thing we buy, you know, each, each, each thing we buy has a directions in it. The directions are always written by the creed of the product. You know, if you buy something General Electric, the General Electric writes out the principles and puts it in a box. You know, God made man and he, he put these principles he, and he wrote the principles for living. And he put them in a lot of great philosophies and a lot of great, a lot of great movements that have been on the face of this earth. And he put them into the probe, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think the greatest thing that that AA well, gives, it gives us a design and a direction to live by. And, and we still have the opportunity, sure, that we give everybody the right. You can steal that, you can you, you can use them, they're free. If someone's here tonight. These are directions you hear that AA has these things offered. And if you want to do it your way, you're free to do that. You're free to do that. You know, I think one of the, the greatest things that's, uh, uh, of the 12th step is the great powers of it is that we grow through giving. You know, that as we said, the greatest growth just to lay down your life for another human being. And we get more through giving than we do receiving. I think that as we do this, we grow and grow continuously. My book says that we hope you won't want to miss this. And I think it's one of the great wonders of my life and the great experience of Alcoholics Anonymous is to see, it says, to watch a, you know, to watch loneliness fade in an individual's life through the twelfth step, through the person you work with, to watch this loneliness fade and to watch him get up himself and watch him help other people. I'm sure that this is something you don't want to miss. And I think this is a great part of growth and to watch the fellowship growth as it has here. And and watch these people help other people and to watch these things change. This has been really the wonders of my life and surely one of the wonders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we we'll complete the 12th step tonight. Next week we'll go back again, just like the 12 steps do. And we finish the 12th step, we'll go back and begin the first step what is the problem, so next week we'll begin with step one.